Okay, ready? Take what you know and it's about a time when you get yourself in we are. I want to know something she's I'll think about everyone you need. I'm holding it. Things are real now. I have you seen you wanting you. Hey. The ratio. Okay, though. The Toray Show. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> You's a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. Ain't No Mo is one of the most interesting, hysterical, gripping, compelling Broadway experiences that I have had in a really long time. It's a play about everybody black is about to get on a plane to go back to Africa. But then it's a look at what it means to be African-American in this moment as we're about to leave behind the African-American experience. It is deep. It is powerful. It is funny. It is like no play I've ever been to. And I really wanted to talk to Jordan Cooper, who stars, who created, who is the man behind this play. It's extraordinary, and it's a fantastic conversation about the play and about writing it and the business of trying to save it. Let's get into it. It's my man Jordan Cooper, the creator and star of Ain't No Mo on Torre Show. I am so thrilled and uplifted and excited after having seen your play it is an extraordinary night at the theater and like right from the first moment you know you're doing something totally different this is a this is a black show talk back to us you know we're not gonna have that normal broadway sort of vibe it's very exciting right away from the from the first moment yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I wanted. I wanted even from the music and the lights, like I wanted people walking in knowing that this is this is this is your space. You know, I wanted to feel like a cookout. It definitely feels like a cookout. The the music and the vibe and everything, and most of the people there are black. Take us. I want to go through the play a little bit, but take us back to even the writing of this. Like, where did this come from in your spirit? Yeah, so I, I started writing it. It was like right after the election, the 2016 election, and uh, I was all these black men and black women were being murdered within weeks of each other. And then I had my own writing with a police officer on 14th Street in New York uh, at 7-Eleven, and I was I was <laughs> reaching up to get this like dollar seventy five cent slushy that they had, and I was standing next to a police officer. And right when I reached up, he like grabbed his gun, like he went to go get his gun. And I remember I just put my hands up and then he just kind of looked at me and was like, huh. And then like kind of like went on about his business. But I went home and being like, damn, I could have died over a dollar seventy-five cent slushie that didn't even taste that good. Um, and literally I I just kind of started asking myself questions about my own worth and 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 my own mattering and and my own purpose and 
just really wondering why we put up with it. Like, why do we, why do we do this shit? Like, why do we let ourselves walk out of the house knowing that we might not make it back? And I started thinking about like, what if we just all said deuces? What if we just said, you know, like we're leaving injustice, we're leaving, we're leaving all these, all these um, economic injustices behind and just saying, Hey, we're going to start over in, in, the, in a new land in the promised land per se. I mean, Yes, that that is the impetus for what you've done. What if everybody was about to get on a plane and go home? Yeah, yeah. the plane is really about America. Yeah, right. Like we we don't get to Africa in this piece. You don't even try to envision that, right? Like this is it's sort of like the African American experience is ending. Let's take a look at it before we exactly. go out. Before, exactly, right? exactly. Literally, just 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 seeing all these different people across the country and their different responses and their different whys of why they would get on that plane or why they wouldn't get on that plane, that final plane out of America. And I treated each scene almost as if it was its own play uh, so that mm. each thing got, got its own due. They were fully dimensional characters who had their own opinions and had their own thoughts and feelings. And they didn't feel too sketchy. It didn't feel too much like, like we're just seeing small impressions of human beings, but actually, no, you're seeing, you're seeing some human beings actually having to wrestle with themselves and make some hard decisions and also really decide what America is. Cause I, I keep telling people this, like, this is my love and loathe letter to America. You know, that question of, of, do you love America when you look like us is, is, is a hard question. It is. Yep. <laughs> it's yep. a hard question. Um, but I believe that there's something about like the ability to love and loathe something at the same time and, and, mm. and love it so deeply that it has to make space for you. Which is the exact same thing that I that I'm trying to do with the American theater itself. It's like, nah, like we belong here too, you know. Oh, you do you see yourself as on a mission to change American theater? Not necessarily. Like I feel like I feel like all I can do is make the work, you know, and then that hopefully the people who the work is for can help do the change. Because I feel like not like one person can do a change. I feel like it's on the people, you know. Even as sure. we see with 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 this hashtag save ain't no more, you know what I mean? It's take it's taking a collective to actually make 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 some progress. And I'm I'm hoping that like all I can do is really just keep making what I think theater should be. It's because I love it so much, but it's not always what I love when I go to see it, you know? Um, but mm. I see the possibilities of what it can be when I go to see it. I'm like, ah, this could be that, and this could be this, and and I'm loud, and I'm boisterous. Literally, I'll go to a Broadway matinee, and if I see something on stage that hits me, I'm going to shout. I'm going to be like, yeah, say that! You know what I mean? I'm going to give it some love. And then it's funny when I go when I go and I do that, and all these white people just turn around and look at me like, <laughs> like why is this negro speaking in the theater i mean this this idea could be a movie why yeah. do you like theater or a limited series why why do you prefer theater to television or film i think theater you know i'm not i'm not against doing it as a, as a film as a limited series at all um it's something that i want to explore for sure but i think that theater you get to say it to everybody's face there's something mm. so communal about theater. You know, I always say like, like these people will never be in this building at the exact same time ever again. Never. And to be able to treat each night as special as once in a lifetime 
darkness as it is, um, is, is just a moment that will never happen. Like last night, each audience is so different in how they communicate with the play. I like the idea that like, you know, sometimes I feel like film and TV can be masturbation a little bit. It's like, it's like, it's a thing that's going to happen without you or with or without you. Right. But theater, it's like, we need you to be a part of this experience in order for the experience to be this experience. Right. Mm, it's mm. from night to night, tonight, tonight, tonight. And I think that there's something about the, the, the um, necessity of community that comes with theater that, that this story was begging for. So this story is extraordinary. The characters feel real, as you talked about, as you hoped for. Uh, but it, I think, like, traditional narrative, let's say it goes this way, right? Where a character is developing something, trying to get something, they get it, they don't, hurdles, whatever, they get it, finally. Your piece sort of goes the opposite direction in here's multiple characters uh, responding to a big piece of news, but the play, if it, you could reorder the play, right. I could walk in the middle of the play. I would understand exactly what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of, time is kind of elusive in this play. It's mm. a very, everybody has the same mission, but you never know. It's not like something's happening chronologically directly after the next thing. All these things can, all these things could be happening all at the exact same time simultaneously. And we just happen to right. drop in to this place when we drop into it. Literally the audience is flies flying into these different people's apartments or their homes or their prison cells, you know, um, and really getting a chance to see what is happening in America at this point in time. Everybody has a different reaction to the exact same message. And that message is we're all going back to Africa. What next? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, I want to talk about some of the pieces of this that I love and get some of your thoughts. There's nothing to spoil, Right. Yeah. And we won't talk about the end end, but like, you know, it, 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 like you said, it's a group of set pieces that function around this big idea of like, we're all about to leave prisoners and guards. We're all going back to Africa. So what are we doing with that? But you start off with this extraordinary church service, right? That's set in 2008. Yeah. Um, and when you get the preacher telling the audience, like my president is black and I'm like, okay, I'm with this. And then the preacher's like, okay, audience, chant it back to me. My president is a nigga. And I was like, what? Like, this is going to be fun. Uh, talk about that 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 initial opening moment and what you're trying to do there. Yeah. So uh, that scene was really inspired by the final White House Correspondents Dinner. Uh, that uh, that was <laughs> that was hosted by Larry Wilmore. And the final words that he said of the night was, Barack, you did it, my nigga, right? And I remember everybody being so upset, like, how dare he call Barack Obama a nigga? What? In front of all these white folks? How dare he, right? And even me, I had a moment of like, dang, why you say that in front of all the white people? Like, why? You know what I mean? And then literally that forced me to sit with myself and it became, why not? Why not? That's literally what he is. That's 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 how we talk. So why are we shifting the way that we speak in order to make white people feel comfortable in a space that we should be liberated in, right? Mm. And so as I started exploring that, I started thinking about the, the joy that we had when he was elected, this idea of 
promise of hope, this idea that things were going to change. A lot of people thought we were moving into a post-racial society while the rest of us were scared that he was going to get shot at, at the inauguration. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, now, yep. with all those things happening at once. And then realizing once you're, once you're in the wake of his presidencies, leaving the White House, you realize, damn, what changed? What what change occurred? We're still we're still dealing with the exact same things. You know, Black Lives Matter was founded under the the presidency of the first black president. So, like, if we have a black person in the White House, why are we still having to convince people that Black Lives Matter? This Mm. this idea of we haven't really moved as 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 far ahead as we we thought we did. Um, And then really kind of playing on this idea that like white people are like, you have a black president, what is there to complain about? So I, I wrote mm-hmm. this church service on the night of Barack Obama's election where they're burying, black people have gathered to bury their right to complain. <laughs> and while we're mourning over our right to complain, this preacher is telling us, hey, but look forward. Look what we have to look forward to. Yeah, we may not be able to complain, but what are we getting in replace of that, right? We're getting freedom. We're getting liberation. We're getting, I can say what I want to say when I want to say and don't have to worry about how white people feel because the president is what? My nigga, right? And that that idea of being so liberated and so joyful and so 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 ecstatic of the future is is all encompassed in that in that scene where everybody's up on their feet and they're shouting, glory to God, there is a nigga in the White House. Glory to God. And then to be hit over the head with the reality of, oh, shit, wait, we're still in the same place that we started off in, you know? Um, and that's really what that opening scene kind of kind of tries to tries to do is attempt to get to that 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 height that we were at on that day, that joy, that mm. that that unadulterated, liberated joy that we had. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. 
On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. And it does, that moment does something that I've seen in a couple of recent plays where we're going to divide the audience. And if you're Black, we're going to treat you like this. And if you're white, you're going to feel differently. And we don't care as creator, as as a cast, that we're causing division in the audience. We're triggering the audience. Um... You know, I definitely saw people around me who were like, my president's a nigga. And other people were like, I'm not saying that shit. But you're not supposed to say that shit. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, I mean, Slave Play did some of that work where, like, black and white people are sitting next to each other and like, I feel violently differently about this than you do. And right. to bring those things out is really beautiful. I think there was a time when art would shy away from pointing, you know, really poking its finger at that and yeah. making the audience feel different ways. And now people like you are like, no, no, like first scene, let's do it. Exactly, exactly. Because also I wanted people to know who necessarily didn't understand the cookout vibes and who didn't really get those that kind of signaling that was going on before even a word was spoken on stage, what kind of night this is going to be. What did you get yourself into, right? But also, you know, I, I've, I've been saying this a lot because a lot of white people have been coming and they've been enjoying it and they've been understanding it. But, you know, some people are like, I don't get it. You know, there's so, I remember one critic was like, there's there's so many uh, colloquialisms go by so fast that we don't have a chance to, you know. And my thing is, how many times have I sat in a Neil Simon play where so many colloquialisms went by so fast that I didn't have the chance to catch it? How many times have I sat in a Shakespeare play and I had to do cartwheels in order to understand what the hell was going on on that stage? The exact same work that we're trained to do with what's considered the American canon of theater, the golden canon of theater, they have to do the exact same work to come sit in a play like Ain't No Mo. Okay, I, I, I want to talk about a bunch of these, a bunch of these pieces in this play. When we go to the reality show reunion taping of <laughs> the real baby mamas of the South Side, yes. and things get crazy. And and then I'm like, okay. We're really dealing with modern America and some of those complexities of it. And the yeah. black people are doing their thing. And then the sister, quote unquote, is unmasked as transracial. And the yeah. anger and the bitterness that the black characters have been harboring toward her. And then she quotes Dr. King and the <laughs> audience goes nuts. And the whole the whole house is just like this glorious mess of like, oh God, no, she didn't quote Dr. King like on her own. So, I mean, talk about that moment because it's such a brilliant, glorious, it, it's a reality show mess as you would want it to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I wanted to 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 kind of uh, allude to the to the Rachel Dolezal's and the Kim Kardashians and the Bad Bunnies and the uh, Bad Babies and the, uh, all these white women who um, who adore blackness in a very specific way. 
Um, and it kind of teeters the line of what are you trying to be? What are you trying to say? And I kind of break that line with this character who, who is declaring herself as transracial. You know, she's like, well, if somebody can be transgender, why can't I be transracial? And the problematic nature of that. Um, and really throwing it into this real housewives kind of, of, of container of what would happen if, if, uh, uh, somebody who declared themselves as transracial was thrown onto a reality show with a bunch of black women. <laughs> and and the ratings that that would get and this idea that that these other black people as you watch that scene you realize that these other black people are somewhat disposable in a way because this other person is now being able to do what they can do but get a bigger following mm. this other person can take on blackness and not be black and get a bigger following Mm. It's like we got what we needed, you know. We got what we needed from them. We just needed the anger from them. We just needed the the confusion from them, the the, the ratchetness from them. Um, and now we can now we can move on. And this character is really just she studied blackness. She studied blackness. Literally, she talks about you know having to take daily doses of, of Hennessy and purple and, and and hot sauce and all these things to maintain her blackness, right? Um, and this idea that, you know, I wrote that, but the thing is, what's crazy, yo, is that I wrote this before I knew that transracial was a thing. And now people are actually coming out and calling themselves transracial. There was this, mm-hmm. there was this white dude who, who, who uh, had surgery to make himself look Korean and considers mm-hmm. himself transracial. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is the, what, what, what are you doing? But then also thinking about what does that mean for the actual trans community who, who is still trying to, 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 to uh, fight for their own rights and their own, uh, their own entryway into the conversation of humanity. Meanwhile, somebody's over here talking about some damn transracialness. Like, what the you know, By this point in the play, you had hit me with the sermon. You'd hit me with this reality show moment. There's another scene also in there. And I was like, okay, this is propulsive. It moves very fast. There's no downtime. There's no slowness. Like a lot of times, you know, especially when you do exposition, the pace slows down a little bit. We got to make sure everybody knows we're in 1996, blah, 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 whatever it is. Um, but you're moving very rapidly. Just like the pace of it is very rapid. And I thought, okay, we had a ratchety sermon, so that leads to that. And we had the reality show, that leads to that. But as you keep going on, you maintain that pace. The dialogue is constantly crackling. It is both madcap and hysterical, but also deep and real. And it's never caricature-ish. I'm like, you know, it's never like, oh, I heard that idea in a play 10, 20 years ago. You're like hitting me with like ideas and comedy and... And I'm like, wow, like you're, I feel like your, your pen just moves very quickly. Um, talk about just the speed of the play and creating this dialogue that it's constantly moving from hysterical to something serious. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I wanted the play to feel like, uh, like a, like a flight, literally like this flight, like a flight. This mm. idea that you, that you buckle yourself in and we not stop until we stop. Um, because really what I wanted to do was I wanted us to go, 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 go. So it could be one experience. There is no intermission. There is no time for you to, to actually devour because I want you to, to, to be able to, to consume this all as one piece of work. No time for you to think about what a thing might mean until it's over. So you can mm. actually 
digest it as one one piece of material. And then also, like, I, I love writing these monologues that are arias in a lot of ways, where these characters speak and they talk and they go like this and they do, 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 do. and that to me is like I, I I love music and I try to approach monologues as a piece of music. So to the point in a musical where a character might normally stop and sing, this character delivers a monologue that just goes that consummates all of their feelings where they can't, where they have no option but to speak as fast as possible, get every idea clear and through. Um, I dance with poetry a lot, you know, in this, in this work. Um, and this idea of like the, the pain being mixed with the comedy. I just have a very dark sense of humor. Like I just love, I just love laughing at funerals. Like there's always something to laugh about at a funeral. Like that bitch ain't paid me back. I gave her $20 last week for a light bill. She ain't give me that money back. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like something, there's always something to laugh about. And I, I have to do that uh, with works like this. And I think we have to do that as a people in order to get through the thing. Like black people are notorious for turning shit into sugar. You know, we have to find a way to move through. And I think that that in my writing, what I like to do is is just naturally find a way for those two things to coexist together. You know, I even do the Miss Pat show is, is a show that I created and that does the same kind of thing where it's like this this idea of this pain and this comedy have to kind of coexist in a really interesting way as their life. Yeah. So that dichotomy you're talking about really comes together with what do what what do we even call it the the when the the rich black folks encounter the slave underneath the floorboards you have basically i mean i assume people who are listening to this who've gotten this far have seen the play right but like we have basically a, a, a an upper class black family seems like you know like carlton from the fresh prince and like you know the 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 relatives that would even ignore him you're he's poor to them right, right. and they and they clearly seem to think we are not like them. We are not one of them. They're like, we're not getting on the plane. Like, why would we leave this? We have everything good here. Um, and then the slave pops out from under the floor and all hell breaks loose. And of course, she has magic powers that she can control their bodies and make them talk. Talk about that scene and what you're going for there because that is one of the most central, most powerful heartbreaking, hysterical, brilliant sort of scenes in the whole piece. Yeah, yeah. So that that to me came from this idea of 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 wealth and class and how sometimes when when we get to a certain class level, uh we're able to in order to get there, we have to separate ourselves from our blackness in a really interesting way. Um and what these characters have done. It was funny because I was talking with Stevie, my director, and uh, he used to always leave that's his favorite scene. He was like, it's just so funny. It's so funny. I'm like, yeah, it's funny. He was like, but they're so stupid. I'm like, I don't know if we can say that they're stupid because what, what's happening in the scene is literally that these three women who are sisters, their father um, owned a business that became a multi-million dollar business that they've inherited. And their father back in the day, uh, was was uh, almost lynched by the Klan. Literally, the Klan tried to lynch him, put a rope around his neck, and hung him, and it didn't, it didn't work. He was able to escape. And uh, all because he was, he was on some sort of ladder of success, right? He had more money than the other people, right? And so in order to do that, he thought, I know how to, now that I have a second chance at life, I know how to get success and be successful. I'm going to separate myself and my family from my Blackness. And his way of doing 
doing that was literally ripping the blackness outside of himself and locking it inside of their family basement to never be seen again. Uh, and what happens in this scene is that the spirit of blackness that finds out about this plane and all black people leaving America and is trying to tell this family that they need to get the fuck out of America. Uh, and the, the blackness bursts through the basement and tells them, Hey, you have to come with me. And they're not willing to go. Right. And it, it, it's really a scene on, um, anti-blackness, but also like how we've had to really, like I said, separate ourselves not not all of us, but a lot of us had to separate ourselves from blackness in order to get to a certain level of success. We had to assimilate and code switch in order to be respected. Uh, and this family has done that all of their lives. And now they're being asked to 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 become one with their blackness. They just can't, they just don't want to do it. It's been so valuable for them to not do it. Yeah. Wait, the, the, the prison scene took us in a different emotional direction, right? Because before you were very high energy, hysterical. That's like the breakdown part of the song when things get softer, more melancholy, more emotional. Talk about what you wanted to do in that note. Yes. So the prison play is actually, my favorite always shifts, but but I can say that it's, it's probably my favorite scene. Um, the prison scene's your favorite. Yeah, because it's so human. It's so human. And, and literally what's happening in that scene is that this woman has been locked up for 15 years. Um, and now all, all inmates are getting released. All black inmates are getting released to go to go to Africa. And for the first time, she gets to experience what freedom might look like. But before she can get out the door, you know, they're handing her back her belongings from when she got in there 15 years ago. And her joy is missing. And her peace is missing. And her dignity is missing. All these things that she walked into that prison with are, are now gone. And she's not giving, being handed them back in order so she can go back into the real world. Right? And, and basically, she has to make a decision of, you know, do I want to stay in here? Or do I have to go out and create new things? Do I have to create newness, even though it's been stolen from me, even though it's been taken from me? Which is really that character is a metaphor for 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 blackness, or as, as a metaphor for for black people as a whole. This idea that that our joy and our peace is taken, and we have to find a way to build something new, which is what a lot of our ancestors did when they came over here. You know, everything was stripped from them. They they were stripped of their of their of their traditions and, and their religions and their and their language and their, and all these things. And had to start from anew. And I always say that we built black culture out of absolutely nothing. We built it out of mm-hmm. and stones and mud. And we built something that's a hut called black culture. But that sticks and stones and, and, and mud is so gorgeous because now everybody wants to live in that damn hut. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this character, what we see here is that I, she was inspired by somebody who I actually um, met um uh, a black woman who, who I was speaking to after she got released. Um, and really this idea of what's taken from people who are in mass incarceration, who are inside of that system in ways that we never think, let alone thinking about black women in that. We think about black men in, in, in that sort of narrative, but rarely do we think about black women who, who are going through that, yeah. with that challenge right now. Yeah. In the world of your play, nobody is really saying, I don't want to go. 
everybody is sort of joyfully going and you kind of create some things, some structures where some rules where you're like, we can't stay. And we all like, you'll be transmogrified into a white man. Why? Cause I think if it actually happened, there would be some debate within the community. Some people, not just the rich people, but some people be like, why are we leaving? Even some poor people be like, why are we leaving? Some people be like, I don't want to go to Africa. So why, why is it not, a little bit more of an internal argument about maybe we shouldn't go all go to Africa. I think there is in some like, for instance, in that clinic scene in the in the scene in the um, in the community center where the women are getting abortions. Um, the 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 mother of the child is this. The, I don't want to give it away, but her her husband is basically telling her. Um, you know, there's this flight you gotta go, and she's like, "Why would I get? Why would I trust a free plane? A free plane ticket from the government? Why will? Why will? Mm-hmm. Get there? You know what I mean?" And and she she pushes back on it a little bit until something happens where it's like, "All right, okay, I'll go." Um, but really, what I wanted to play into was this idea of like what happens when we're when we're not all cohesive and we're not all one and we're not all focused on a thing, like we're kind of being having a carrot dangled in front of us of look at this, look at this, go here. Don't you want to do this? Don't you want to go here? And everybody's like, oh yeah, let's do that, right? And then this idea of of easy, right? This idea of of instead of fighting for what belongs to us, instead of fighting for 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 the real estate that we have in this country that we built. We decide to take the easy route and leave and say, F it, we, we're all going to go. But nobody's staying here to actually fight for what belongs to us. Well, there's well, uh, part of I want to get into part of that. Um, so tell me about Peaches. You play Peaches. Is she is, uh, I don't even, I'm like, I remember my kids, like, I don't know what, what are Peaches' pronouns? What, <laughs> Yeah, so Peaches is the drag queen. So Peaches is 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 she her? She may be uh, Pontavious on Tuesday, and she may be Peaches on Wednesday. You know, she goes she gonna be who she wanna be. Um, and Peaches is a drag queen um, who who is 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 basically saddled with this idea of getting all these millions of black people onto this plane uh, so that everybody could get to their liberation. Um, and she is just loud and brash and, and sassy and, and, and beautiful, but also has this kind of pain that's inside of her um, that we find out a little bit later in the play. Um, but yeah, she, she's just this carrier. Really, I was interested in this idea of like, what if the blackest and queerest version of myself was in charge of getting black people on a plane? Because when we think about blackness, even within queerness, it's like there's this idea for with a lot of black folks that black, that queerness is, you know, an other, that queerness is, you know, um, in relation to whiteness in some ways. And we can't accept that. And we don't do that. Right. But we can still keep Uncle Jojo at the cookout who be molesting the little kids in the corner. Right. But, but, but we we we. <laughs> We, we don't invite Rufus over, right? Because you know Rufus is into the homosexuality. Um, so, so this idea that this that kind of this argument that comes together, or this this idea that not a lot of Black folks or not all Black folks really accept queerness in that way. What if they had to depend on queerness in order to get to where they needed to be, right? Um, and that's really where that question, this idea of peaches, came from. She was sort of like a Christ-like figure in a lot of ways. Hmm. She she reminds me of the sort of Greek chorus or whoever Shakespeare would have come in, give you the exposition and keep moving. Right. She's mostly 
expositional, whereas the other ones are looking at what I mean, obviously she's part of the tableau of blackness, but she's really constantly giving us the information we need to understand where we are in the story rather than the others are are just living, they're more living their lives and making the decision of if they get on the plane or not. Exactly. Whereas Peach's scene, Peach's scene partner is the audience itself. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So can we, t- can we talk about the bag? Cause <laughs> yeah. the bag, because because uh, while I say Peaches is an expositional figure, when we get to the saga of the bag, now she is fully in the play and in the motion of, are we going to go? And that's when it all really took on an even deeper notion than it already had for me, the whole story you're telling. Because it's like, well, yes, we could move African-Americans to Africa but there is an Americanness to us yes. that, for for better or worse, we hate it. But we are American, and yeah. we can't just transport that. And if we were to move to Africa, that might be great. But it would be something different than the people we have been here. Exactly, exactly. This idea that that there's so much blood and and tears and bodies in the soil that we would just be leaving kind of behind this idea that that we would really just be re-entering a situation where we don't know who we are. Because once we get there, technically we're colonizers, right? Technically we're taking space mm. from people who who already are calling that space home, right? So so we're already orphans over here. So now we going over there, we'd be a double orphan. You know what I mean? So so this Miss Bag really represents she is the carrier of all things black, of all history, of every prominent figure, of every invention, of every spice, of every food, of every song, of every piece of art that blackness has ever created lives inside of her. Um, and everybody was instructed to drop their own inventions and their own blackness and their own things into that bag before they boarded that plane. And it's and uh now it's left up to Peaches to try and get get all that stuff on the plane by herself. Why did you talk about why you decided to make sort of the spirit of blackness look like the way the bag look? The bag, the bagness of it, obviously fits the theme. But yeah. you could have done that bag in many. You know, you could have styled it in many different ways, and you gave it this sort of luminescence this sort of it, it it has this very high feel you know it's very shiny and bright when the lights are hitting it it's like oh so why did you choose to make it look the way that it does yeah so this bag is kind of covered in stained glass uh, which reminded me of the church which reminded me of like a black church specifically in the stained glass images that are on it and these 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 symbols of hope these symbols of there is more, these symbols of there is more than what we are right now. And we are better and bigger than what we are right now. And I wanted her to kind of have that idea, that that, that kind of uh, physical representation of hope, um, but also shine and, and, and be bright and be magnificent and, and, and translucent in her own way. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, she is, she is a character of her own for sure. <laughs> She is a character of her own without ever talking. Yeah. Um, you you give her enough light, figuratively and literally, that's like, she's real. Yeah, yeah. And she only speaks twice. She only speaks 
after the one, once after Peach's monologue, um, Peaches is like, you know, they're going to all push us back home. And you hear Diana Ross says, when I think of home from the Wiz. And then after that, Peaches asks it a question and she's like, you know, everybody's gone. Now what they got now, now what they got And the back says easy. So wait, I assume that folks have, who are listening have seen the play. So I want to provide a little bit more context for them. Why does Peaches not make it onto the plane? Because we love Peaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See it leave without her is kind of heartbreaking. And I'm like, I, I, get, I get it, but I don't. Yeah. And I'm yeah. hurt, but I get it, but I don't. What, 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 what was that? Oh, multiple things. One, this idea that, that the one queer character in the play is the one that's forgotten. The mm, one. Whoa. Whoa. Okay, okay. Thinks of like, hey, what about that person there? Remember that person, right? Nobody thinks about that. But then also this idea that we can't do anything alone. In order for every, anything to be accomplished, we have to work together. If Peaches wasn't by herself trying to grab that bag, that bag probably would have moved. The bag probably would have moved. But because mm-hmm. there was no togetherness, there was no community, there was, there, was no, um, there was no kind of power behind protecting ourselves other than this idea of let's just go, let's just leave. Nobody wanted to stay and fight. And so the person who was willing to fight was the only one left behind. Of course, too, right? Like somebody's got to be late, like folks, right? The first thing that she's doing on the phone is somebody is talking about being late and she's like, you can't be late. You can't be late. Right? You got to be, no, you're going to get left, right? And then she's late. Yeah. 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 It's trying, trying to get that damn bag on board. Trying We're to- all trying to get the bag. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tinderfoot tv campside media and iheart podcasts radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it, it, I mean, it's it's extraordinary and yet, and good reviews, 
Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it, it, uh, something's going on that they you, you were up for two weeks, right? And they said, yeah. we're going to have to close and you got it pushed another week, right? Yeah. Wait, wait, wh- why is that happening? What is really going on? Yeah, so, so that's a, a multitude of things. One is that broad, the infrastructure of Broadway isn't necessarily built for a show like, not isn't necessarily, it isn't built for a show like this. It isn't built for a show that is this loud and this black and this, this in your face. Um, because, you know, all, all these marketing teams, all they can really do is what they know how to do and use the tools that they have. And those tools don't include us. Those tools include the people who, you know, want to see Bad Midler and Hello Dolly. You know what I mean? You know, want to see, you know, the new Stephen Sondheim show. You know what I mean? Like that, that is usually who those tools are for. Um, and they just don't necessarily know how to go into our neighborhoods and let like our people know that this is a play that's happening. Usually the black people that you'll find in the audiences of Broadway shows either love theater already, love black theater, are aware of these black playwrights and their in their lineage, or they see Denzel Washington is in a play and they want to go see Denzel, or they want to go see Lupita, or they want to go, you know what I mean? They see the celebrity and they want to go there, and that's kind of what gets them in. Um, but with a play like this, you know, there are no celebrities on stage. You know, there, 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 there is no recognizable IP. We're not based off of a movie or a song or an artist or anything like that. It's completely original. So we don't have any of those things. It takes time to really build your audience. Yeah, I keep saying, I'm like, the same way that the government is strategic about putting a liquor store in a, in a prison or a black neighborhood, Broadway needs to be strategic about putting black billboards in black neighborhoods, you know? And usually when you do so, those, see those things, it's because they had outreach to a black organizer, to, a, to somebody who has their feet on the ground and it's like, no, y'all need to put a billboard here, 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 here. But we shouldn't have to outsource for that. We shouldn't have to, to do the work of out that we should be built in to the marketing no matter what show it is. You know what I mean? Like, we should, it should be built in. Uh, it, it doesn't even have to be a black show to have a billboard in the damn black neighborhood. Let them know that I mean, they're welcome. Because that's the problem. A lot of people just don't know that they're welcome to the theater, you know? Mm, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of black people don't think about the theater until it's sort of shoved down their throat, like you're saying, Jamie Foxx is here, Lupita's right. here, whatever. Um, and the dominant... And, and you know the most people who go to Broadway are middle-aged white women from Connecticut, right? <laughs> right, and where something like like I'm trying to think like slave play was about blackness and whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. So they were coming into that, right? I, I feel like a strange loop had some of the same conversation that you're having in terms of this is about being black. It's not about being white. Right. We're looking at what it means to be black. They were able to get folks, but I don't you know, I I don't know quite how that was. You're like, let's talk about what it means to be black. We're not there is no white characters at all. Right. So that's it. It is hard to get white people to come and look at a piece. Like you said, we'll look at a piece of art that talks about what it means to be white. But what it means to be, you know, a New York Jew, what it means to be you know, from Seattle, whatever. But but look at a piece of art about what it means to be black when we've built this culture. Uh, I don't really want that. Right, right, exactly. It's 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 rough. It's it's rough, and I think that it's about you know even look at a strange loop, right? 
Like, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were like, you know, well, Strange Loop was able to find an audience and they're doing successful on Broadway. And my question to that is, Strange Loop is is the only show out of three that has a, that has a Pulitzer Prize and a Tony Award for Best Musical. And it's also the only show that's shutting down before it plays a year on Broadway. Whoa, whoa. Like we can, we can be distracted by the, yes, it got all the prizes, it got all the things, which is amazing. But also it's the only show with all, with all of those accolades that, that is, is running the shortest. Why? You know, and I think that we really have to have these conversations about like, once again, how do we get us into the theater? Because it's not that we don't always want to see theater, because the chit- look at the Chitlin circuit. The Chitlin circuit, yeah. if, if Tyler Perry says, oh, I'm put, I'm doing a play and such and such, that shit's going to be sold out in 24 hours. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's it's about people knowing that they are welcome. Cause, and I know people say, oh, y'all don't have the money. But it's like, no, we got money. We got lots of money. It's about where we want to spend that money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Do I, do I want to spend it on a, on a Broadway show? And if I do, why why should I? If it's like, if I, if my name isn't on the door, if I'm not invited, if I'm not liberated in the space, if when I make noise, all these people are going to turn around and look at me like I'm crazy, why would I pay to go be in mm. that space? You know, and that's really what we have to have conversations about is how do we shift? How do we shift the narrative? And I'm just so grateful that, you know, that I, I wrote an open letter, you know, calling, calling for action and the community is responding at large. Like all of our shows this past week have been completely sold out. And this week coming up, wow. completely sold out. Like it's, it's so, what, so, so what do you think about they're saying the 23rd is the last day? What do you need to do to push it on further? What, what needs to happen? Yeah, there's still some tickets that need to be sold for these upcoming dates. But then also there's there's also money on the on the other side of it that has to be made as well. Like we we need we need help cuz basically what we're doing is if we're we're depending for a Broadway show, you have to make your money off you you have a weekly cost, right? And you have to make at least that weekly cost, right, in order to keep the show running. Our problem was we weren't making that weekly cost up front. So that means that we have things that we have to to pay in order to get us ahead, right? So that's the that's been the biggest thing is like getting our audiences in there and then also how do we take care of the weeks that are coming up? Because the thing is they don't want to open up the week and then be like, oh no, but nobody's buying that's that is which is so frustrating. They don't want to open up the week and then be like nobody's buying tickets and you're not making your weekly calls. But I'm like, no, just open this up because you never know what's gonna happen if we go past the twenty third. Because now people are hearing about the show. Now people know about the show. You know what I mean? And so that's what that's what we're hoping for and we're trying to get right now. You you were at the public theater for how long with this? Uh we were there. Um, we got extended twice there. We were there from like March 12th to May 1st, which is still a short run there, even though even with the twice, two times extended. Um, I know the public, before we came to Broadway, the public wanted to do it again. But then the the process to getting to Broadway was a whole thing. And then we didn't even find that out to the last minute. So like we were kind of sitting on this show for a while, wanting to do so much that we get, didn't get a chance to do. Well, wait, what is the process of we are somewhat successful at the public theater. How do we get this to Broadway? Like, what, what is that? Yeah. So basically what happens is it's all about finding a home. It's all about, you know, 
there are hundreds of shows are trying to find a Broadway theater. So like, think about it like an uh, airplane circling, circling the airport and they're waiting for somebody to land so they can have space, right? Somebody else to take off. So that's basically what Broadway is. People are waiting to find a space for them to occupy. So there's hundreds of shows that you probably haven't heard of yet that are just literally waiting for a space. Um, and we were waiting for a space for a while. Um, and then COVID messed up a lot of our plans because we were supposed to go from the public to the Royal Court. We were going to go to London, then we were going to come back and take that exact same production to Broadway. And then we were going to do like a free free Shakespeare in the Park. We were going to be like the first non-Shakespeare play to be a Shakespeare in the Park. Like we had, we had all these plans and then COVID messed it up. And then when we got back from COVID, it was about this. Um, which been which has been the difficulty with like something like think about slave play right slave play went directly from off Broadway to Broadway right which automatically came with that buzz that they made off Broadway us we're like three what that was two two three years ago that we were off Broadway so we're having to like build up the buzz all over again whereas before it was like these other shows that kind of had these these productions that got them the buzz and they went straight to Broadway like Strange Loop had the DC production that went straight in and all these different things. So that's that's another factor too, is that, you know, people are like, what is Ain't No Mo? Who is Jordan Cooper? What is, you know what I mean? And it takes more than two weeks to find an audience. <laughs> you know, it, it takes more than two weeks to find an audience for these works and, and for people to know about them and be able to come out and support them. And that's why I'm so grateful for like people like Will and Jada and Shonda and Tyler and all these people who are like, no, this is a play that deserves to be on Broadway. We're going to do whatever we can to make sure that people get to see it for as long as possible. I mean, when you hear those names, Lena Waithe and Shonda and these sort of great people, just the people who are producing this, it made me feel like, well, I got to check this out because all these people who I respect their artistry are are, are standing beside this as producers. Right. So, you know, J- Jeremy Harris, this got to be something, you right. know, because Jeremy is brilliant. You know, Lena is brilliant. Like if they like it, like, let, let me see what Lee Daniels is epic. Like, if they're into it, like, let's see what it is. That was the first thing that really, like, made me feel a certain urgency. Like, yo, I got to see this. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, and I'm so grateful for that. Like, but that's another thing, too, like, that goes back to, like, the whole marketing of it all. Because in a way, like, you would probably never heard of it if, if they weren't attached. You know what I mean? If they hadn't right. heard you know? And it's yeah. like, how do we support these works where they don't necessarily have to get these celebrity co-producers and artists for their for their work to be seen, right? And with me, I'm just so grateful that that they saw the work and they love the work. Like Jeremy has been loving this work since since I did a workshop of it like three years ago. You know, like it's like I'm so grateful that these are people who are like, no, we're gonna do what we need to do in order for this show to get seen because we're in a we're in a, we're in a place right now where post pandemic it's hard for shows period for live theater period, right? So it's like in order for it to really get pushed forward, it's like you gotta have these producers who are who are recognized who can help you with marketing and say, hey, people, I know you don't know who this person is. I know you don't know what the show is, but I'm telling you it's good and you got to see it, right? And so thankfully, we, we had a lot of people come and do that. I'm, I'm just so incredibly grateful. So incredibly grateful. So I know you're you're in the midst of running this and starring in this and the fight to keep it going. It, is it still supposed to close on the 23rd? Or you, did you get another week? Where, where are you at right now? Now it's still the 23rd. We're still fighting, though. Okay. Good luck. Yeah, we, we fight. I know that, I, I know from your resume and everything, you're always working on 16 things at <laughs> once, right? You right. get the Miss Pat show, you got other things. So do you know what play 
you want to do next? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm working on it now. I'm working on it now. And I'm, re- I'm really excited it? about it. Uh, I can't say what it is yet, but it's a backstage story. It's a backstage give me, story. Give me, give, me, give, me, give me just like a, like a, just like a <laughs> sentence. Where are you taking us? Um, it, I, ooh, Hollywood. I'm taking you to Hollywood. That's all I can say. I'm taking you to Hollywood. But it, it is uh, it's something that makes me, I know when I'm writing something that feels good because it makes me uncomfortable. Like I have to confront things with inside of me, and th- within the inside of me. And if I have to confront something within inside of me, then I know that that somebody in the audience will have to confront something. Um, like I always try that's to write really, something that feels urgent to me. Yeah, that's a really powerful notion for any creator. That if the work makes you uncomfortable and challenges things inside you, then you're on to something. Exactly. Exactly. Because then otherwise, like I have other plays that, you know, theaters have reached out about doing and I always say no, because it it doesn't feel urgent. It has to feel necessary. And if it doesn't feel necessary, why do it? Like, I, I, I don't believe in just doing stuff for a paycheck. It has to feel like something, something inside of me is like, no, this needs to be said, you know? Uh, and when I wrote them, they felt like they needed to be said. But then now it's like people want to produce them. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. But ain't no more is something that you know is is just constantly challenging me and ch- constantly um, you know pushing me to to liberate myself in 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 these white spaces or spaces that are traditionally white and say hey no you can you can write something for the people who don't necessarily know that they're invited to the theater and get them in there that's that's the work you know that's the work is shifting what it looks like. Hmm. Um. I ask everybody who comes on this show, what does being black mean to you and where does it show up in the work? And you're creating really black nuanced uh, work, but talk about that. What does it mean to you? Being black to me is the greatest gift that I feel like a human being could ever be given. Um, it is, it is literally magic um, you are naturally blessed with rhythm. <laughs> you are naturally blessed with the ability to to laugh through the hardest moments of your life. You are naturally blessed to be beautiful and to be bold. You have to naturally be bold just just to even have the skin color. The moment you walk out of the house, it's a statement, you know. Um, and the way the way that it shows up in my work is that it's it's just baked into the DNA of every single thing that I do, uh, which is, which I'm grateful for um, because I just can't help but be black and I can't help but, but be myself and write characters that are not ashamed of being themselves or write characters that are not ashamed to be loud, no matter what space they're going to be seen in. You know, I always get the critique from, from, from black folks. Whenever I do get critique from black folks, it's always like, it's always like you're saying things that, feel like they should be kitchen table talk. You're saying things that feel like they should be left within the community. But I'm like, so you're saying that I should be making work for white people. You're saying that I should not be writing for us. I should not be creating for us. I should be creating for the people who aren't us, right? Because I am writing kitchen table talk because I expect you to show up at the goddamn kitchen table. I expect you to show up at the kitchen table and any space that you occupy is yours because you are there. 
Thank you so much to Jordan for a great interview and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. <laughs>